0: Hey it's me, your website. This is kind of awkward but are you embarrassed of me? I mean you don't show me off anymore or tell anybody about me. Worst of all I know I have so much to offer you in helping you to find the best talent, to seducing your ideal customers, and articulating what your brand stands for. Huck Finch can help us they specialize in crafting websites that solve business problems and are easy on the eyes. On top of that, they knock out websites in under 60 days and their pricing is transparent, so there's no sticker shock. Give me the makeover I deserve. Learn more at huckfinch.com because an ordinary website just isn't enough.
1: to Life on Brand, where builders and breakers share how they live life on their own terms. As always, the show is brought to
0: you by the Huck Finch boys, Matt and Hyde. Check us out at huckfinch.com. Again, that website is huckfinch.com. And also, subscribe to the show because you know you want to. Alright, let's jump right in. We're here with the king and queen of the shrooms, Chris Carrier and Dina Wojcik. Matt and I had the pleasure of hearing Dina share her story recently at Ipsy at the Do Something conference, and we wanted to bring her and Chris on the show to expand on some of the things that she touched on. Prior to starting the Mushroom Factory, Chris and Dina lived in the Bay Area, my neck of the woods. They quit their jobs. They've traveled around the country for a year before settling in the D. That was a terribly short version of their incredible story, so rather than have me bumble through it, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Chris and Dina to share their story from so here they are, Chris and Dina from the Mushroom Factory. Chris and Dina, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. Thanks
2: yeah, for no having problem.
0: us. So just wanted that I mentioned it in the intro that you guys are not from the from Michigan, you guys but you guys have a Michigan made business. So can you guys touch on a little bit about your journey and how it got you in the D?
3: So I guess Yeah, we, we met in California. We were both living, I was living in kind of the peninsula, like Silicon Valley and Dina was in Oakland and I was being a software engineer in, you know, the main place where people think about being software engineers and, uh, working for a startup. And it happened to be one of those, one of the startups that you don't read about, that one, the many that, that fail. And I got kind of a, a glimpse into what that looks like, the kind of uglier side of all that. And that process really turned me off to, Silicon Valley and kind of the way things run there. And I just all at once felt like I needed to get out. And um, so I actually at that point ended up kind of getting rid of all my stuff, Um, actually shipped my truck to Hawaii and moved to Hawaii and lived in my truck for nine months or so, uh, just to get kind of as far away from the old environment as possible and kind of change as much about my life as I could. And yeah, I went through that kind of Went one end of responsibility to the, the far other end of responsibility and did that for a little while. And then um, in coming back to the mainland for some family stuff, ended up kind of reconnecting with Dina who we've been friends for a long time. And yeah, I, I suppose a, a romance sparked there anew. and
2: uh,
3: We kind of threw our lot in together. I think at that time I was making sort of being a dirt bag probably look pretty fun. She was being a teacher. And so I was like, Oh no, I'm just driving around this tropical Island and eating, eating, mangoes and um, it's pretty great. And I think I sold her on that lifestyle. And so then, yeah, we ended up kind of going through this journey again together, we got rid of all of her stuff and then went to Hawaii again to kind of settle some of my affairs and then came back to the mainland and piled into her Mazda little car with all of our stuff that was left and hit the road.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that at some point, I think it was in Hawaii, we started talking about what at the time we called our adventure index, which was this idea of like, what, what do we want next? What are the, what are the boxes we want the next phase of life to check? And we'd go back and forth a lot about, you know, being a dirtbag in Hawaii is pretty great and pretty easy, but it also felt like it was lacking our lives that were lacking some structure or some impact or something that made us feel responsible. It kind of felt like we had retired and it just didn't feel like we had earned. I I didn't feel like I had earned that yet. Like I wanted more. I wanted to have done more. And so it became pretty intentional to drive around and find what places would check off some of these boxes that were feeling important at the time. And it was things like you know, it's it's an interesting place to be. There's a certain amount of culture. There's a certain amount of possibility. It's less expensive than the Bay Area, but offers us some of the things we loved about the Bay Area, which was like access to the outdoors and people who are different from us. And, you know, those, those criteria changed as we drove different places and spent time different places. But I think by the time we got to Detroit, it stood out so much for its difference than a lot of other places we had spent time and Also for its friendliness, people were just overwhelmingly kind here. You know, I grew up in New England where now having lived in California and the Midwest, I go back home to New England and I'm like, oh man, people are a little bit mean here. I was like stunned by Midwestern friendliness and it was very attractive to us. And yeah, it just felt like a good place to try to put down some roots, at least for the time being and, and see what we could grow here. And the mushroom thing had been a hobby of Chris's back in the Silicon Valley days. Just, I think, I don't know if you would call it this, but maybe as like an antidote to all the screen time to get home and grow something and do something unique. So that was a skill set that we had that then evolved into a a business venture.
1: I have a quick, quick question, maybe back to Chris on the, uh, maybe the captain obvious question is why Hawaii, but more interestingly, at least to me, what made you originally say, "I can live out of a truck"? This will work.
3: Sure, yeah. I think uh, I think honestly, the the thing. So I was about to turn thirty at that time, and I had lived a very, I lived a, not 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 a super boring life, but a pretty like responsible life. I like gone to college, gotten out of college, immediately gotten a job, and just had a job forever. and Never done like I never backpacked around Europe or like did any big things like that. And um, so at that point, I was yeah, I was getting ready to turn thirty, and I was looking like the around me people who, I don't know, that area of Silicon Valley is like, just, it's driven by money. And I knew a lot of people with a lot of money who didn't seem very happy. And so I think the, the, the thing that switched in me was to, instead of sort of living this one life while dreaming of a different life, to dive into things and say, like, go find those dreams and like murder them. It's <laughs> like dreams are only dreams if you keep them in a little box and say they're precious and never really look at them too hard. If you ever actually go to chase one of your dreams, you realize there's a lot of complexity to it and it's not much of a dream after all. It's like, it's a bunch of other stuff that you didn't expect. And so I'd been to Hawaii on vacation. I'd been to other places on vacation and I was always doing this thing where I'd go, um, I, was, I was really into scuba diving. And so we'd go on these like family trips sometimes to like warm places. Um, we'd like scuba dive as a family. Every time we left, I'd be horribly depressed because I was going back to this sort of life of that just ne- never felt very intentional. It just kind of felt like the life I'd stumbled upon. Um, and I was always like, oh, I should just go back to the tropical place. All those like tour guides seemed really happy. I don't know. And so I was like, okay, well I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to actually go do the thing. So it was interesting. I actually got, you know, I, I loaded my truck on a boat and it sailed to Hawaii. And then I got there and there was my truck. It was, that was a very strange experience. <laughs> um, but now I actually, I found myself very ill equipped. I just, I'd always had like a square job that paid me enough money to do the things I needed to do. And suddenly I was like in a place homeless, basically. And it it really kind of freaked me out. It kind of shook me. I kind of got around that. But at first, I was just like, I I don't even know what I'm doing here. I kind of had a real crisis of faith. And I think it was actually a really great growth opportunity because like I could have stayed in my career or whatever, got more and more experienced and people would have told me how, you know, much I know about things, but it would have been this very narrow set of things. So suddenly I had to like realize or figure out where do I sleep tonight and things like that. And I got very good at that. And it was it ended up being a, a grand adventure and all. But I just, I remember I went into a kayak shop at one point that I really enjoyed and I wanted to get a job to like bring in some amount of money. And I had this resume that looked great if you're applying to a, you know, a startup gig or whatever, but it was all irrelevant to being a kayak tour guide. So I go in, I'm like, I am, I'm 30 or whatever. I'm, I'm very inexperienced at this. So like I had to basically make a whole new resume that was like, it was like my college resume it had two things on it, you know? And um, you know, what? I, whatever, right? I, I interned at a kayak shop when I was 19, like that kind of thing. It was like, I'm super ill-equipped for this job. It was good for building perspective. And uh, it was a great challenge. It was again, it was like, here's this dream, but a lot of stuff wasn't some, you know, wasn't just a dream. It was like the day to day where, oh, I got to go to the grocery store. I got to like, in that time, I had to like, go find a place to shower and like weird stuff that you know, like I didn't have to deal with in my old life. And I think that continued through the mushrooms and starting the business was like, I'd always had this idea, let's go to a place like Detroit, let's buy a warehouse, let's put a mushroom farm in it. It's a no-brainer, it'd be it'd be so easy. And of course that's <laughs> idiotic. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like <laughs> we now we own a warehouse, we have a mushroom farm in it, and it's like sometimes feels like it's gonna like crush us into little specks of dust. So yeah, I've just been in on it. My, my life in the past 10 years, whatever, it's been in all about killing dreams. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a like a very stoic way to put that. <laughs>
0: For your eulogy, hopefully somebody will say that Chris did a very good job of killing dreams. <laughs> he
2: killed all the yeah. dreams. <laughs> Life well dreams
0: like a master. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned that the mushroom thing kind of came while you're, as a way for you to get away from the, the, the screen time and the, and the blue rays that come at you from the, the computer screen. Why, why mushrooms, of
3: all things? I've had a lot of hobbies and with all hobbies, I tend to go pretty deep. So like scuba diving was one that came before mushrooms um, and they kind of come and then oftentimes they leave as quickly as they
2: come. I will just interject here and say that that's a bit of an understatement. So when I first met Chris and he was like deep in the mushroom growing hobby, when I first went to his apartment, like every surface in and around his place had mushrooms growing in or on or out of like an old pair of jeans, a phone book, an old trunk you'd gotten at a thrift store, like, he really goes deep, <laughs> So I feel like that's important context <laughs> to know.
0: How <laughs> it's very romantic. So romantic. Yeah. yeah, really.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's something fascinating about mushrooms that I think uh, is kind of, it just seems to be a little bit universal, even people who don't want to eat them. I think part of it is, I don't know, at least in my education, going through school and things like you learn about photosynthesis, you learn about plants, but you learn almost nothing about fungus or mold or. Um, you know, there's this entire branch of, of the, of nature that you just like have, I had complete ignorance of. And so you start to like, try to grow a mushroom or whatever, and you're like, oh, I'll plant a seed, you know, and it's just like, it's nothing like that. It's completely different from growing plants. And so you start to do it, you start to watch them, you're like, what are these crazy alien things, the way they grow, everything about them is just like strange at first. And so I just, I find it fascinating. They're really, they can be beautiful and just like, Yeah. Forever strange, and uh, and they like, they will like, we grow on paper, like grow on all this interesting materials, and and I don't know, it's just they I find them even now spending you know far too much time thinking about mushrooms. I, I still find them super interesting, and I think it's been something nice about our business is a lot of people come in and they're like, what are you doing here? Like I've never seen anything like this, and a lot of people are just like, like we could we could tell them any sort of nonsense we want because they're coming in with very little context about like how mushrooms work at all. Now.
0: I have to ask uh, because you guys do grow all different varieties of mushrooms do you each have a favorite type of mushroom?
2: Yeah I think so you know it's been kind of a journey for me when I first was hanging out with Chris and saw his mushroom growing I was like really not a fan of mushrooms I was like a pick the mushrooms off the pizza type of person um, which <laughs> really not on brand <laughs> but I that. I've come to like them a lot more and I think it's because of doing this work we've you know, become close with and, and certainly adjacent to a lot of restaurants and the chefs that are running the kitchens in those restaurants. And so we've kind of learned through those interactions how to cook them better. So I think now I like mushrooms a lot more because I know how to cook them. The favorite one that we grow for me is a variety called Pio They're really cute. They have a fun name. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little bit unique. And, and that's been fun just to be able to, you know, develop my own palate and then help introduce our customers to it, whether it's customers at farmer's markets who are maybe seeing something for the first time, or chefs who you know have interacted with them a little bit, but have a hard time sourcing ingredients like that. And so when they find out that we're growing them, often just down the street, they can kind of nerd out. And that's a really fun moment to be able to give people something that they've been looking for or, or something they didn't know they were looking for, but then they really like.
0: I will agree that P.O.P. but mushrooms mushrooms are, are
3: really cute.
2: Oh, thanks. I'm good for knowing them. Most people have never seen them before.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I like lion's mane and shiitake. I think those would be my tops.
2: Yeah, we have a lot in our house right now. So I think both of us get a little bit of like mushroom burnout just because, you know, there's ugly ones or ones we don't sell. Usually those are the ones that come home with us and become our our staples for our meals. But we still like them, especially when other people cook them for us,
0: (laughs) I think. So when you guys got to Detroit, when you settled here, was it immediately, all right, we're going to plant some seeds, like plant our roots here in Detroit and then immediately start growing mushrooms or did the mushroom like factory come a little bit later after you were here in Detroit?
2: It was a little bit of an evolution. So I think one thing that struck us right when we got here that felt unique was how many people that were, you know, from all different walks of life were starting or running businesses and in some ways, that was familiar because, right, in the Bay Area, you see a lot of people kind of, you know, talking about their startup and, and pitching you their their idea for an app. What felt different and unique and inspiring here is that a lot of the people we were meeting who were running businesses were running businesses where you make a physical thing. Um, like manufacturing felt like it was still very much alive in Detroit. That was inspiring for us. And I think... Also, there was just this robust community of people running businesses, whether they be other farmers or, you know, all these different food businesses. And it felt like there was support here to launch a business even without a business background. I mean, neither Chris or I have an MBA or had studied business really other than kind of being in the business of, of being an adult, which like we were doing with medium levels of success. So I think we became attached to the idea of starting something and and wanting to build a company that we wanted to work for. What that company did was an evolution. At first, we thought, well, you know, Chris knows how to do software stuff, and I know how to be a teacher. So let's combine those things and do like a coding boot camp. And then luckily, we pivoted away from that, because there's a lot of people doing that here pretty well. And so I'm grateful that those exist. And I'm also grateful we didn't do it because that would have just been a lot more of what we were already doing. You know, we both kind of wanted breaks from careers and in software and education. And so to start a software education company wouldn't necessarily give us that break. So we took a class. That, you know, there's a bunch of different supportive classes in, in Detroit. One called the Build Institute runs different business support classes for early stage business owners. And, and through going in that class, we would just, forced to talk about it every week. I think that was the biggest takeaway of that class was having a couple hours every Wednesday where we were forced to sit down and say, are we really doing something? What are we doing? What are we not doing? And it was over the course of that, I don't know, six or eight weeks that the idea for the mushroom factory evolved. We quickly abandoned this software education school. I think both felt really relieved that that wasn't the direction and then started to really nerd out about oh, we're meeting all these farmers, and there's this really interesting legacy of farming in the city, and we're getting welcomed into this community where there are these incredible leaders. There's a gap in the, in the types of food that are being grown in Detroit, You know, we wanted to make sure we didn't just compete with other growers who had been here for a long time, paving the way to even develop a literacy of what urban farming means, and, and so we didn't see anyone in the city growing mushrooms, and so it started to just become clear that that was a community we wanted to be a part of. There were amazing people welcoming us into that community. And and we had we happened to have some know-how and some equipment to grow a crop that would hopefully kind of supplement the existing ecosystem of crops and not just directly compete with with other folks that were doing it. Yeah,
0: I I find that absolutely fascinating and, and so cool that you guys found a niche for your business essentially by being kind to those around you, by like not trying to like by showing respect to the others who are doing urban farming in Detroit. That's, that's really cool to me.
2: Oh, that's a really nice way to say it. I mean, it, it feels, if you dig into the, the farming community here, there are some people who have just been on the front lines of it for a really long time. You know, this woman, Jerry Hebron, this, this guy, Malik Yakini, and they have been like 20, 30 years trying to react to different forms of food injustice. And so the fact that they would even give us the time of day to talk to us felt really generous and we just wanted to approach it the right way. You know, with some humility and also to look at what resources were available and, and try to bring a perspective of creative reuse to existing resources. So one thing that, you know, I think anyone who comes into Detroit who hasn't lived here for a long time will notice right away is that there's a lot of housing and building stock that's not being used. And so growing mushrooms started to make a lot of sense because they're an indoor crop and so we saw this available resource, these these buildings that were abandoned or vacant. And a crop that could be used in them. And so that's where this kind of notion of making use of existing resources in ways that are maybe a little unconventional came out for us. And, and we started to try to commit to that mentality for how we would grow the business.
0: Yeah, and another thing that you said earlier as well that really stuck out to me was your guys' original attempt for a business was a coding camp, because you guys were marrying the two skills and two backgrounds that you guys had. But it's interesting that like you realized by doing that, you would just be back in, in a, in a way, back into the lives that you guys were escaping in the past. So that was a really, really interesting how you guys came to that, that realization.
2: Well, it's funny. It's like all these adventures, I think, are little exercises in experiencing that moment of being really afraid and wanting to cling to what's familiar. Like Chris first got to Hawaii and was like, oh, maybe I should just get a job and live in a house. And he had to fight that and choose to live in his truck and work as a kayak tour guide. And I think we were like, oh, the scary thing, we'll start a business, let's cling to what's familiar. So we'll do software and education and, and had to fight through that, you know, desire to cling to what's familiar and instead say, but but what's fun or, or what's going to put us... I mean, that's where this idea of being just stupid enough comes from, right? Like, it's also maybe smart to cling to what's familiar because you have some proven expertise <laughs> in those areas. And we do not, did not have expertise in, in being farmers, certainly not commercial farmers. So I think, yeah, it was a, it was a mix of being naive and, and being a little brash that got us here, and also like existing in a, in a place of privilege where we could take those kind of risks. But I'm glad we did. I'm happy I'm not teaching coding lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and, and probably would be students are happy about that too. Yeah,
1: I think the comment that you made about the, the right amount of stupid but we can maybe elaborate on that a little bit more in a second, but it was especially awesome hearing you uh, say that at the conference, having a teaching background that made me laugh out loud. Just like, just like holding those two like facts and truths up uh, on the stage together at the same time was, was great and really fascinating.
2: Thanks. I think it's, I mean, working with kids, I think is a foundational like work experience that I continue to be really grateful for and reflect on. Cause like, kids are the best at being the right amount stupid. You know, they, in my experience, working with middle schoolers and high schoolers, it's such a cool age group because they've got these really mature minds. So they're having, you know, fully complete thoughts and ideas, but they're maybe not jaded enough yet to then try to hide those ideas from other people. And so... A 13-year-old will come out with some like real crazy nonsense about what they want to do with their lives. And it only feels like nonsense because I've got all my layers of of being old (laughs) that I filter it through. So I think, honestly, I learned that from them. And then to to find Chris who was trying to relearn that for himself, it it was good timing for me. I was getting, you know, starting down a singular path of like, well, I'm just going to advance my career. And the thing in teaching is like, there's no there's not really vertical movement in teaching. Like you either keep teaching in your classroom or if you want to move up the air quote scale, you become a principal and then you become an administrator and, and you get further and further away from the fun part. Yeah. So I was kind of dealing with that reckoning with that when, when Chris was like, or you could quit everything and come to Hawaii. And I think it it came at the right time to give me some time to reflect and, and get perspective on what I wanted and what I didn't want. Yeah.
0: And, and it's Hawaii. There's, plenty of spam masubi to eat in Hawaii and you really can't get that anywhere else. <laughs> right.
2: <so. laughs> right. Yeah, it's a pretty good place to go and, and disrupt your life. You know, he wasn't <laughs> saying, let's go, I don't know, <laughs> many other places that would have been less compelling.
0: <laughs> Something that you you were talking about too that uh, leads us into the next question that we had. So we've like perf- perfectly scripted this but that you guys like went into a business not having... The experience or the background. You mentioned you don't have an MBA. You guys were not farmers. So you guys, first of all, had the self-awareness for this. So congratulations for that. That's a that's a first step that a lot of people don't seem to recognize. But you also went out to the Build Institute. We saw you guys have a video that you guys did with a Motor City Match. So we're bringing this up because what we see a lot in entrepreneurship right now, it's, it's glamorized in a way where it feels like you have to do this on your own, but all by yourself or else you're cheating or you're not accomplishing this great thing because you got help. So what made you guys have the humility to reach out for help and to get support to, to create a business?
3: I think it was more like just putting one foot in front of the other. Um, it was like the, there was a day I, I can't even put myself back in their shoes of like thinking, oh, this is gonna be fun. Let's start a business. So how do we do that? And like me, there's new thing one. So it's like, well, I guess we'll, like, being who we are, we're like, we'll find a class or something, yeah. like a class will teach us how to do it. And so, yeah, we went and took the Build Institute class. And, like, I think the biggest thing it probably did was carve out time for us to sit and talk about what we wanted to do. And so, yeah, we went through a few ideas before we landed on, like, let's start a mushroom farm. That's a great moneymaker. <laughs> I don't I don't know if we even had that sophisticated of an idea at that point. It was just like, this is what we're going to do. And so, yeah, it just, like, set aside the time and... The whole thing has been putting one foot in the other. And then we like, in a way that I probably wouldn't recommend other people do, like the first thing we started to do was like, let's try to grow mushrooms. Like that's how you start a mushroom business, right? The first thing you do is grow mushrooms. And over the years of trying to do this, I realized, well, maybe that's not really if you're trying to start a business, maybe that's not where you necessarily start. Being sort of a technician, I'm like, well, you just start doing the thing and then you kind of tack on all the other stuff later. So we started to grow mushrooms in like the closet of our 500 square foot apartment and humility or anything like that. I think it was more just like, we had no idea where to start. So like, yeah, start the class, start with anything. Um, and I think there's merit to that, and there's danger to that.
2: And I think also, you know, the asking for help was really by necessity. I mean, we saw people around us who were our age and, and made themselves approachable. And the big difference between us and them is that they were running successful companies. And so I think just like pure curiosity would would drive us to ask questions and ask for help. Questions like, how do you do this? (laughs) You know, what, how do you fill your days? How do you hire someone? We were really lucky that we were surrounded by both formal and informal settings where we could get information from people who were living it. And I think the nature of our business too put us in the way of people who were willing to share. You know, we can't run our farm without restaurant customers. And so we walk into any restaurant to make a sale and have a little chit chat with whoever's working in the back of house. And inevitably the things that would come up were did you know that this was a thing? Or you know, where do you get your shelves? <laughs> it crazy. These things that I never thought I would care about, you care deeply about because they're impacting the day-to-day of how you run your business. And, and then luckily when I'm driving around the city delivering, I get to see all these little snapshots of other businesses in action. And so curiosity would just grow. I would see people doing things that I thought were unique or seemed to be going particularly well. And I found that once I started asking, people were really generous about sharing. And I think now we're in the same position. as like you, you do something a little bit wrong for a while and you learn a lesson and it feels like a hard fought lesson. And if someone asks you about it, it feels like this great gift that you can give them to say, oh, don't, don't make the same mistake I did. Don't do it wrong the way I did. Do it this way. I learned the hard way that this is the way to do it. And so we're surrounded by this community of people who have learned all these kind of specific lessons the hard way. And I think we're all eager to tell each other, <laughs> don't do it like this, do it like this. And if enough of us, I think there's room for more of it, honestly, amongst the, D- the Detroit entrepreneurial community is just to have people constantly sharing, this worked for me, this didn't, this resource is really useful, this wasn't, you know, there's, because there's only a certain amount of time in a day. And so it takes a lot of energy to vet. Is it worth going to this class? Is it going to give me what I need? Is this really a launch pad or, but just expanding our, our network and asking questions. Was necessary and also has helped us move forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that's been true for us as well. Like, it's kind of nerve wracking to start asking for help or questions like the first few times. But at least in our experience, we were lucky as well. Just people seemed so open to like wanting to help. And I think there's something with all entrepreneurs, or not all, but most, where it's just like you want to save people like some of the pain uh, that you experience or some of the, the bad decisions you made. So there's always, at least for us as well, been such a willingness to share in our community, which is so critical.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You also mentioned in there that story uh, that I think you talked about at the conference, the story of your first sale, that seems to tie into the, maybe the just being stupid enough, AKA like courageous, whatever way you want to phrase that. But would you be willing to share kind of that that first sale story that you talked about at the conference?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, it, it was just... a. Uh, a series of being in different contexts, right? So we were in the context of our apartment and we had actually successfully grown some mushrooms and it felt like this huge accomplishment. And then, you know, we, we had them in a shoebox and we suddenly transitioned to this this new mindset, this new context of, well, I guess we want to sell these. And so we kind of shuffled down the street to this diner that we had been going to for a while. And we really liked the feel there, Rose's Fine Food. I mean, I would recommend it to anyone. They, they have done a really excellent job of creating an atmosphere where you go in there and they are really kind to you and they feel like, you know, you feel known. And so I think that it was not an accident that that was our first customer, because that was the the place that we felt the most comfortable going to do this kind of uncomfortable thing, which was to like shuffle in and kind of shove a shoebox full of mushrooms <laughs> across the counter. And it's it really just speaks to them. They were really generous and really supportive and, and liked them. And I think gave us confidence at the exact right moment, because then, you know, we tried that same move many more times and were met with rejection. But I think it was really important that the first time we were met with this warmth and, and encouragement and quickly also learn, like, maybe don't put them in a shoe box. And when you make deliveries, you go in the back door, not in the front door. You know, there's these little things that you just don't know until you know, but starting with them and they're being so supportive, I think set us on a path of thinking oh, maybe we can do this, you know, we'll, we'll polish it up a little, but it's not impossible. And and they're just people also who are trying to do a good job. And if they think we could grow something that would help them do a good job, then we'll fit into their routine. But it was terrifying. I mean, I think that continues to be something we struggle with, which is we like growing this food and, and we like our customers. And there's this moment of having to make a sale that just is tough. Like it's hard to ask for money. And it's hard to ask for money for food because of all these reasons, you know, food is this really politicized thing and access to healthy food is is a really tricky thing. And so to put a price tag on it and say, well, it's worth this much. I think that causes us a lot of stress and continues to. You know, I think we'd both be happier if we could just give them away for free. But that's from those business classes. <laughs> we learned that you're not supposed to do that. We did cover
1: that in those classes. So that's good. <laughs> no, that, there's such a great lesson, you know, baked into that, too, I think, for anyone selling anything particularly like food is I think has its own unique challenges as most things do but is there anything that you found that helped you overcome uh kind of that struggle for asking obviously still experience just experience it to some extent but from the shoebox days are there any lessons that might translate to others
2: I think for me there was a real personal journey of like taking myself a little more seriously and, you know, the, the lesson I think is that I had to take myself seriously or acknowledge myself as a farmer or a grower, whatever identity I was going to use. If I didn't believe that, and if I didn't put that forth, no one was going to give that to me. And so I would kind of, I had to make a, a, a shift from kind of apologetically, you know, shoving a shoebox across the counter to carrying myself with a little more confidence to say, this is something that I'm proud of. I grew it. I know it's high quality. And so for all of those reasons, it's worth the money. And that's you know, it's something I struggle with still, but it was a big transition for me to, to kind of see myself through a new lens of being like, no, I run, I run a business. Of course I do. Why wouldn't I? And it took a yeah. while because for a long time, it was like, oh God, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. To get past that cringy part and just kind of walk into a room and try to be a little more self-possessed, I think has been the biggest thing for me. And what about you? Uh-huh.
3: I guess sometimes that's something that I've I think thought about recently is like this idea that you, you can't be in it without being of it. So like I, I hear a lot of people and we were guilty of this too, saying like, we're going to start a business, but we're not looking to like make a million bucks a year. We just want to like some humble thing or whatever, as if we're like, want to start a business without becoming business people. But like, you just can't do that. Like if you want to start a business, you have to become a business person because there's all kinds of technical things About running your business, that you're going to have to learn and understand. Like, do you want an LLC? Do you want a partnership? Do you want an S corp? Like, you got. No one's going to figure that out for you. Like, all this stuff. Who's going to do your books? Like, all these things that people tell you. You can even. They told us them in the class, and you're like, oh, sure, I've internalized that knowledge now. But like, we didn't actually take any action on that stuff until we slammed into a wall. Like the idea, okay, you need your accountant, your lawyer. Like all these cliches you hear about starting a business, you can't hear them until you realize until you're one step too far. And you go, Oh, that's why someone told me that it doesn't make sense. Now. So like, if you're going to start a business, I would suggest try to start one that's going to make many millions of dollars, because <laughs> it'll be a lot easier. <laughs> um, and, like, a humble business is not a business at all. It's just a business that's going to go out of business. Like, uh, I think starting a business has been like an assault on our ideals, because ideals and business have trouble living together sometimes. So like, we've always tried to be, okay, we're going to be a socially conscious business. And you know, I think we remain doing that, but uh, it's every day. It's an assault on ideals, you know, because like it's like okay, we have ideals or we go out a business, <laughs> or like it sometimes feels that stark. Like it's money, money, money. It's like you, you become fixated with money. It's not a liberating thing. It's not like oh, I become my own boss and now I'm freed from. It's like being an employee. It's certainly being an employee is great because you don't worry about all the nonsense that like goes into your paycheck. So in some ways, it's made me. It's it's about killing the dream, you know. Starting a business can be a dream to people, but it's like it's dirty. It's like a dirty, every day, soul crushing sometimes thing. And great, and it's also had like the most like the biggest wins, but the biggest wins only come from the biggest challenges. So it's like it's just two sides of the same coin.
2: I think it's injected a lot of complexity for both of us. You know, weirdly, I think it's given me greater compassion for figures in the world that I normally would just be like, oh, that's a villain. You know, like landlords and business owners, like things where you're just like, oh, they're the villain, like they're the man, and we're fighting the man. And then weirdly, we're in this position now where like, we own this building, and and we rent it to ourselves. So we're our own landlords. And so I'm like, I hate my landlord, but I'm my landlord, you know, (laughs) it's, (laughs) it's, It's blown open. Things that felt really black and white to me before, and and like everything, you know, once you know a little more about it, there's complexity and like, oh, it it costs money to keep a building from crumbling to the ground. But then it, it also costs money to run a business aside from the thing. like We actually spend pretty small amounts of time talking about mushrooms now. We talk a lot about like our employment strategy and our distribution strategy, all these things that are kind of adjacent, but become in some ways, like the core of it. Yeah, it's been been tremendously humbling. And, you know, I think depending on the day, we feel like we're living the dream or slaying the dream. And maybe it's always a little bit of both. But it has forced, I will say, like, on a positive note, I think it's forced both of us to be very present, because you can't just kind of let it wash over you the way, you know, with other jobs I've had, kind of just show up, do the work, put in the hours, go home. And you're like, man, what, what happened on Tuesday? Like, I don't even really remember Tuesday. Like I don't really have days like that now because since we're driving the boat, we have to be fully engaged in it, even when it feels like we're about to drive it into a brick wall.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. We were just recently talking with uh, someone on on this similar topic about you kind of, you kind of lose the ability to like, just hate your boss and like, you know, just, go out after work because you are your boss so you kind of lose that like freedom, just be like my boss or my manager makes things so hard. It's like, I am my boss. So all of this is my own, own design for the better or for the worse.
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like some days I hate my boss more than I've ever hated a boss. It's just unfortunate (laughs) that that boss is me, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) still sometimes I want to rage against her.
1: Yeah. It was so generous of you guys to share, you know, kind of that, The authentic, I think, truth of starting a business and then as it grows and the realization of it does actually need to make money. I think those are lessons that all of us need to hear a little bit more, especially if you're in an early stage of of it all. But the other kind of philosophical thing that we really loved that we saw on your website and that you talked about is the open source closed loop uh, kind of concept. Can you explain kind of what that philosophy is and why it became important to you?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, open source comes from, I mean, it was born in software and the idea of like, uh, you build something, you put it on the world, the inner workings of, of it, and then other people can come and contribute to that project. So coming from the world of software, people open source wildly complicated things that I mean, companies do it. They spend a lot of money building things and they'll open source it. Individuals put a lot of their personal time into building things and then leave it open source. And, uh, So, for me, that was a very natural. A lot of my work was based on using open source tools, wildly powerful things. Like, part of me was always like, why do people give this away? But it, you know, but it's, it it was the foundation for building a lot of bigger things because you could get tons and tons of people together and lots of eyes on something and make it bigger and better by having it be open source. And so, you know, some people found ways to build companies that could then make a lot of money off those, you know, kind of by having a big platform, then you build tangential things off of that and, you know, you become an even bigger business. To me, it was kind of a natural thing coming into agriculture and farming um, to say like, well, we don't want to just kind of hide everything and be super secretive because like we could be bigger, we can be move faster and things if we can like make a bigger circus tent to invite more weirdos in to help us do these things. You know, and I think that fit right into that, that closed loop idea, which is mostly just about kind of responsible usage of resources and like trying to be efficient and trying to, you know, not just again, lose all our ideals as we try to scale. But it was interesting taking that idea of open source into the world of farming where, which ends up being, when you get into farming as a business it ends up being kind of a secretive, not open source friendly world is what we found. And it can especially be true of mushrooms, uh, because they are kind of, complex and hard to grow in their own ways and there's not a lot of information out there so people who figure their things out and then they they hoard them like little secrets and they don't want you to come visit the farm they don't want to talk to you they don't want you know we've been excluded from mushroom groups because they saw that we would claim to be an open source mushroom farm and they didn't want us to share their magical secrets to me i think that's a short-sighted that's a short-sighted thing that's just going to keep you being small and kind of insignificant because you're not broadening your your way of looking at the world so we were like well we'll give away some of the things we can figure out so that we can go do more interesting things i mean farming is farming is repetitive and farming is doing the same thing every single day and so you get until you get it perfect so we would like to be able to not have the rest of our lives be exactly the same as the one before it so if we can give some of that out to the world and then go on and do more interesting things i think that's better for us
2: and i think too there's a a vein in the open source closed loop philosophy for us that has to do with transparency, you know, both about farming practices, but also just about food sourcing in general. I think it's become more and more of a hot topic, but it's still a topic that only certain people are accessing and and have the privilege of getting to care about where their food is sourced and how it's grown. And I think the more that we can just Blow it open and say, This is exactly how we're doing this. These are the resources we're using. This is how much. This is what we wish we could do better. This is what we think we're doing well. Just removing those layers of secrecy, I think, has helped us strive toward our ideals and and make our farm a little bit more approachable. You know, we're in Detroit. We came into a city as two white people, that's a majority black city. And I think we run the risk of creating a space that feels like a white space in a black city. And that's something that we try to be really cognizant of and work against. And it and it takes work because for whatever reason in this country, mushrooms are the domain of white men. So, you know, we've been, we get kind of kicked out of groups, both for saying we're open source and also because sometimes I'll be the one who shows up. And I think it just breaks people's brains that there's a woman saying like, let's all share our ideas. <laughs> and people do not want to see that. Some people don't. So if anything, I think it's made us cling more to this notion of, let's really be open source. Let's really try to invite people to be part of this who maybe wouldn't otherwise find a foothold here. In some ways, in response to other people's secrecy and to kind of be defiant and say, there's no reason we can't. There's no reason you can't. There's no reason our neighbor can't. That's what we're engaging in right now is trying to be welcoming and be open and make these products available and also make enough money where we can keep going and keep being sustainable. And I think that's kind of the crux of, of our current challenges. Can, can we do all the things? Can we do them well? And can we do them in a way that's both like economically sustainable and also ecologically sustainable? Because you know, done, done thoughtlessly, farming is incredibly resource intensive and, and wasteful. And so we're trying to, to not do it that way. But there's also a reason why it is because that's the cheapest way to do it. And so we're we're uncovering all these ugly truths about food through being food producers. And it's humbling and, and challenging. But I think now we kind of can't look away. We have to keep plowing forward and try and solve some problems. And, and being open source helps us be innovative. We're not going to solve the problems, just the two of us sitting in a room. I think we have to ask more and more people and get perspective from the community and get perspective from other growers. and. And that's going to make us do a better job, certainly faster. You know, the two of us, what do we know? We need to rely on on the knowledge of of larger groups. That's a great, it's absolutely like
1: a great mindset. And, you know, like, I think oftentimes thinking in the Silicon Valley sort of mindset, the like word disruption is like tossed around is like the greatest thing ever, but never thought of in kind of the, the world that you guys are in. But, you know, disrupting like how people talk about it and the level of trans- transparency and getting rid of some of that secrecy, um, and sharing out what you all, all have learned is incredible, and it also makes me wonder a little bit, you know, for you, has is, is this allowed you to put your teacher hat on, uh, at all again, as you kind of figure out ways to share this information with the general public?
2: Yeah, for sure, more and more, I mean, I think it comes out in little ways, like I've I've been kind of blown away by the role of social media in our company. Like I wouldn't have thought at the beginning that having a social media presence would matter for a farm. And it turns out it has been hugely important for us and is how we have attracted most of our customers and also how we have become kind of relevant within the Detroit community that we're in. And granted, it's still like a pretty small group of people, but even just having that platform to practice, how we talk about it and how we share information. I think that's a version of of teaching. And then now that we have some interest, we're we're starting to put together some workshops that'll actually be educational experiences for people um, coming up at the end of the month and then throughout the summer. and that's really exciting. You know that was part of the goal from the beginning, but it was also a little scary because you know, back to feeling like, who am I to do this? Well,, having to convince myself, okay, you know we have something to say. We have something to share. We can invite people in and not necessarily just lecture at them and tell them how it is, but but do something together and facilitate an experience where people can ask questions and, and make experiments and, and maybe learn something themselves that then they can share back with us. That's the part that I'm most excited about. Yeah, hopefully it'll happen. The next couple of weeks will bear that out. So we're we're nervous and excited about it. <laughs> we'll keep an eye to see how it turns out. Thanks.
0: And Chris, how how are you able to apply your your background into uh what you do with the Mushroom factory.
3: Well, there uh, there are just like technical, you know, coming from software. There's there's technical problems to growing mushrooms. They're um, very particular about their sort of growing conditions, and so there's just getting that all dialed in has been something that probably I spent more time on. Getting the humidifier working right and the ventilation and all these things. It becomes a kind of an you learn a lot about HVAC, and uh, now I spend a lot of time going in buildings, looking at their duct work, wondering how it all comes together because. That's uh, another thing that like you just never appreciated the complexity until you try to do it and you go. You know, how do I keep something ninety eight percent humidity while having huge airflow while keeping it warm in a Michigan winter? So some of that, you know, coming into food production and growing, and um, we come. You know, we've we've crossed paths with sort of food safety rules and all this. What I ended up doing and what sort of uh, the, the farm is powered on is kind of again open source tools. A lot of them made for kind of running your your maybe your your servers for your website or your you know whatever your platform is, but they're made for collecting data, graphing it, things like that. But for us, we just use them for collecting all of our uh, environment data, humidity, airflow, CO two levels, things like that, and then we graph them using all these kind of tech tools. The nice thing is that when when it comes to food safety and all that, a lot of the rules come around um, record keeping, being able to say. You know, I kept this you know food product at this temperature, and I have an audit log that can prove that. So some of that just came for free because like that's my natural way of setting things up. That's how I would set up a new you know if I was on a job that you know was putting up servers, I would use these same tools. So that all just came naturally to me, and um, I think there there had there been some beneficial side effects that I didn't even know about because I didn't know about any of this food safety stuff at first.
0: Very cool. All right. Well, you guys have both graduated to the slow burn. Ooh. So we're going to ask you a few, a list of questions here that we ask every single guest. Starting off with, how do you define success?
3: I guess I'd have to experience it before I really know how to <laughs> define it. But yeah, maybe not a destination. Uh, it's a it's kind of a state of mind.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's probably hard to define because it's it's hard to. Exp- experience. You know, one thing we talk about a lot is like we've had little wins throughout this journey and and also plenty of, of losses. But we've noticed in ourselves that when we're in the moment of a win, it's hard to stop or we tend not to stop and be like, hey, this is good. This is right. We did this well. And so I think for me, maybe success would be recognizing success as it's happening instead of immediately on to the next, you know, because you do need that kind of relentlessness and that drive to, to grow something. But I think it's a skill that you have to practice to be grateful and acknowledge in the moment that that something, even if it's something really small went right. So I, yeah, I think it's a mindset. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Mindset. Yeah.
0: I, I love always doing the slow burn with two people, two guests, because usually they, there's something to add from each, but then it's always the same theme, like the mindset idea for success. So very cool. The next question Is can you describe a time when you experienced doubt about whether it could be around just starting the business or having the necessary skill? Just a a time that comes to mind that uh, relates to doubt.
2: (laughs) Sure, (laughs) all the time, many times. I think one big one, which was kind of like a critical, a critical point for us, was early in our experience. You know, we 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 did kind of a a bold thing. And we got this warehouse with the intention of locating our farm in it. And pretty early on after we bought the warehouse, we discovered that there was an underground leaking oil storage tank, which is like an environmental nightmare. You know, it's like a couple steps below being a super fund, just really bad. Several steps. Yeah. (laughs) But just not, not (laughs) what you want on a property you own, especially not a property where you're trying to grow food. And it was, yeah, it was awful. You know, we were like, Oh, we just spent, all of our savings on this building and now it's going to cost even more to, to clean it up. And there was also kind of dangling the possibility of like not cleaning it up correctly, which would be the cheap way to do it. But like that would put all of our principles of our business and ourselves on the line to be like, yeah, we're open source, closed loop, but we're just going to turn our backs on this leaking storage tank. So, you know, in some ways it was the moment of, of greatest doubt and fear because it was this expensive, unexpected problem and in some ways, looking back, I, we get to feel proud of how we dealt with it because we dealt with it that, you know, the right way, the responsible way, the environmentally friendly way. So I, it's interesting, like in the moment, it felt awful. Looking back, it feels like this thing that kind of made made us grizzled and tough and, and dug into our ideals. So I like having it as an anecdote, but it was excruciating at the time and and truly made me want to just burn it all down. <laughs>
3: Yeah, one thing that I found uh, living it that uh, I think has been interesting is, you know, you hear, especially because of the way we treat entrepreneurs now, specifically successful ones, but um, there's always a story of the entrepreneur who, when things got tough, they just doubled down and persevered through, and then they became, you know, whatever, billionaire, whatever we're talking about. The trouble is that, like, when when you're in that moment, you're not able to tell the difference between whether you're that person or whether you're the, the dope who kept going long after they should have shut it down. Like, you can't tell while it's happening. You can only tell afterwards that you're the plucky one who, you know, found success through the eye of the needle. So, yes, yeah, so some of the ways we treat entrepreneurship and starting businesses and things is actually kind of problematic for when you actually get into it and realize, you know, that it's not quite that simple. We need to start like failed Entrepreneur Magazine.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well on on the topic of failure the next question for you both is what's a lasting lesson that you learned from a failure
2: i think it it, for me comes back to relationships and having the humility to ask for help when you need it and when a situation arises you know i think there's a there's a part of both chris and my personalities where when things get hard we turn inward and that can feel stoic and, you know, like private and all, all these things that maybe are like, Oh, I, we don't, I'm not going to trouble anyone with my troubles. But there's been, you know, big and small failures with the business, whether it's like, Ugh, we have too many mushrooms to fit in our fridge, or we need help harvesting, you know, there's been all these moments where the simple answer was just ask someone, whether it's for mm-hmm. fridge space, or to borrow their car or to loan you their truck, like there's always a, a kind of quick ask. And it yet feels really hard to make that ask. So I think for me, and I keep learning it and then not remembering it and needing to learn it again, is asking for help. And maybe asking for help before you're in too deep because turns out people are really happy to lend a hand, especially when it's like not that hard on them. (laughs) And so timing it when you can be like, oh, this this would be really helpful. Like, can you give me a half hour? Can you give me that truck for a minute? Is a way easier ask than man, I'm in over my head and I need your full day or your full weekend to help dig me out of it. So, you know, I think in some ways, like asking for help is, is an art of timing thing too and asking for help before you really need it. That's something I would love to be able to do. I'm not there yet, but that's, that's maybe my like, failure is informing that goal for me is, is projecting the need for help on the horizon and, and gathering the troops before I'm there.
0: Yeah, that's a great lesson.
3: Uh, yeah, I think I've just, it's another lesson that I think we're both learning, but haven't necessarily nailed yet is just like the, the difficulty of uh, executing versus like thinking strategically when you're trying to run your business. Um, you know, we're just so busy keeping things going that, you know, we talk a lot about methods for thinking, like stopping, talking with each other, thinking about the long term vision, but then the week starts and it's just like a crazy, like car crash slash roller coaster ride. And there's no time to do it. And so finding finding ways to hold that stuff, hold barriers to the day-to-day, to make sure you're going in the direction that you want to be going. I mean, it's easy to get going executing and then be like, what are we even doing? Like, is this where we want to be? Is this are we even heading to where I just like you can't get to the destination you're going to if you don't even know what the destination is. So like we're always trying right. to figure out what our destination is, and I it changes a lot. We still don't necessarily know it completely. But it's a lot harder than Maybe you, you see you think it will be to know what success even is.
2: Yeah. And like building in the time to come up for air and reflect on what you've done and then where you're trying to go. I mean, even today I was delivering mushrooms to one of our restaurant customers and I was talking to the chef and she was like, man, I've been struggling to store these bags of flour for two years. And I just learned that there is a tool that is designed exactly to be a flower storage tool and I just it never occurred to me to google it because I just thought it was my own unique frustrating problem and so it's things <laughs> like that like that that is kind of an insignificant seeming little thing but it was causing her like some amount of stress every day and, lo and having enough time to just look into it for five minutes and there's the perfect solution and I think that that really encapsulates this feeling of like, if only I could take enough time to breathe to acknowledge what my problems are, maybe I could solve them. <laughs> but sometimes we're just plowing through before we even, I don't know, take the time to, to identify the problem. It's tough. I mean, I think, I think another way to say that is like finding balance. So <laughs> that, that's yeah. a hard thing.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that every small business owner can definitely relate to, being able to find time to work on the business while getting sucked into it, uh, finding that balance. Yeah, for sure. So the next two questions are two sides of the same coin. So the first one is, what's one thing you found surprisingly difficult when you started your business? And on the other hand, what was something you found surprisingly easy starting your
3: business? Surprisingly difficult, I would say, is like uh, managing finances, managing the books. I find that still staggeringly complicated. Um, (laughs) You know, you have the tools, but you have to have a much deeper understanding of financials than I really pictured heading in, you know, what different costs are, how that affects all your accounting stuff. I still don't like it. I wish I could ignore it, but you can't. Uh, so that's definitely a, harder than I expected.
2: I would say at this point, something that's a little easier than expected is like selling our product. You know, I think we're in this fortunate, maybe niche market where, There's a lot of, especially restaurants in the city right now that care about food sourcing and and care about food stories. There aren't a ton of people that are doing the same thing, and so, you know, for a while we were just selling out, and that felt really stressful because I was like, oh, I know, I want I want to have enough for everyone, but also it was a great problem to have, and so I think the selling ended up being something that that is relatively straightforward. Like I don't, I'm not putting a lot of like. Not a lot of my day-to-day effort goes into trying to drum up new business. And I think that's because of things like word of mouth and Instagram and, and being in this kind of relatively small food community in the city. But that's been a, a really lovely outcome. You know, not something I would have necessarily expected, but it's great.
0: Yeah, that is a surprisingly easy. I would venture to guess everybody would love to to be able to answer that question that it's it's easy drumming up business. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I maybe and, and that's how it feels right now. You know, if we talk in a month, maybe I'll be like, oh no, we need more customers. You're, you're catching me on a, on a day where we have the right amount of customers for the right amount of mushrooms. so but of course, like in all things, and, and maybe farming, especially because there's so many uh, variables that, that'll probably change. But for today, that feels manageable. Maybe not easy. Nothing feels easy. It feels manageable.
0: <laughs> I like manageable. The next question, and I'm going to go ahead and and prefix it by saying, this is usually the one that gets everybody in the slow burn. The question is, what's one song that captures you as a person?
2: Gosh, I mean, we've been living for Janelle Monae recently, like the whole Dirty Computer album is the soundtrack to a lot of our long work days. So I might cop out and say that entire album is like a little bit of medicine for me right now.
3: I really like, uh, I don't know, defying expectations, not expectations, sticking it to people who think one way. I mean, that's kind of how I, mean. the part of why I wanted to come to Detroit was because people told me how terrible it was going to be. So I really like songs. Like I think of like uh, the song from Les Mis, like, do you hear the people sing where they're just like rising up and going to go murder some <laughs> murder, murder some aristocrats? Um, it sounds, like that. It sounds like that get me amped up. Yeah, I like uh, I like I like spiting others. Uh, that's that's a like that's got to be like a top three answer. He's a, he's a of
1: other dream killers all time. Yeah.
2: Hey, all right,
1: <laughs>
0: a lot of dream killers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that turns out to be the theme I guess of your episode. There's, there's a dark side of the mushroom factory.
0: Here. Yep. <laughs> uh, so something that we do with every episode is we allow each guest to ask the next guest a single question. So your question comes from Pete Baker, the director of brand creative and digital strategy at Duo. And his question for you is, why do you do the crazy things that you do, like growing mushrooms and working a day job to support this business, when most people don't see the value? So why do you do what you do?
3: I think something we try to remind each other of uh, a lot is that like it's the journey, not the destination. And so, um, both when like we're f- maybe the business is making us feel miserable or feel really great, as long as we can be happy with sort of the journey we're on, and not get too if you get too fixated on the destination and that destination doesn't turn out the way you think it is, then it's a, you feel like it's a big waste. But so I think that's it. It's about maximizing the moment and the sort of the feeling of day to day.
2: And I think, you know, this brings me back to maybe the teaching background, but in maximizing the moment and, and experiencing the day-to-day, that's where the learning happens. Like, I don't know, I feel like in adulthood, there aren't as many kind of catered opportunities to learn. And so throwing ourselves into something that is unlikely and, and you know, maybe some people see as valueless or as a waste of time, it is filled with learning opportunities. And I think we've both evolved as people through this in a way that... You know, sometimes hurts, but but I think is worthwhile. So yeah, for the learning, for the learning and the doing.
0: I'm sure Pete will be happy with those those answers.
2: Hope so.
0: <laughs> uh, now, do you guys get an opportunity to ask a question to our next guest, whomever that person is?
2: I mean, I'm always really fascinated by, you know, I, everyone's busy. So the busyness isn't what's fascinating to me, but like how people are are managing the kind of very regular parts of being a busy person. Like, I want to know from the next guest, what's your day look like? What do you eat for breakfast? When are you getting up? Like, do you have things that are part of your day that are non-negotiable? Do you have things that you wish were non-negotiable that are always getting shoved aside? Like, I I really want... What I wish I could do for another job is to go around with a clipboard and ask people, like, how do you obtain your income? What do you do for fun? Like, I'm just curious about kind of the moment-to-moment schedules of people who are are busy in finding success or joy in their busyness. That's what I'm curious about.
0: Very good. How about you, Chris? You you got through the slow burn as well, so you get the opportunity to ask a question.
3: I guess for whoever, where they are today, how close does that align with the plan at the beginning? That's a great question. Yeah. Like,
2: are they where they thought they'd be?
3: Yeah. Did it end up being like they thought they'd be? Are they, mm-hmm. Did they have to pivot a lot or is it? That's what? a good question. These
0: are both very good questions. So our, our guest, our next guest is, in, in for a
1: treat. That have nice. you. We're just going to make that a new rule. Mm-hmm.
2: Good. Good luck to them. All
0: right. Well, you guys have made it through the slow burn. Your, your reward is you get to plug anything you want for the next 30 seconds or however long you want to take.
2: Oh, wow. Well, so this, this Saturday, April 20th is our opening day at Eastern market in Detroit. So we'll be there with mushrooms for sale as part of the grown in Detroit stall and Grown in Detroit is a great cooperative of growers. So it's a bunch of folks based in Detroit, Hamtramck and Highland Park, all committed to using sustainable and organic methodology for growing. And there'll be a bunch of different types of crops. So not just mushrooms. It's I think it's kind of good one-stop shopping at Eastern Market because you can get, you know, your your groceries for the week there. And it all goes to support the growers in the city. That's awesome. Cool. And yeah. like congrats
1: know. on uh, your, your opening day.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, hopefully it will be nice weather. It's looking hmm. like it probably will that's not be. That's the part be, of Michigan that, that's, that's,
0: that's, for you. that's Michigan for you. It does suck. <laughs>
2: yeah. <Yes.
0: laughs> well, thank you both for uh, being on the show and getting through the slow burn and answering all of our, our questions. Congratulations on, on, on your success and look forward to hearing more about the Mushroom Factory and also being able to visit the, the actual factory sometime soon. Yeah, you guys guys are
2: welcome anytime. Thanks so much for having us.
1: Thanks a lot.
0: And that's our episode, everybody. If you had a blast like we did, make sure to subscribe to the show. You're listening to it already. You might as well. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else.
1: And hey, make sure to share all the love with the makers and breakers out there in your life. And thanks for listening, and keep your life on brand. Life on
0: Brand is a Hug Finch production. Make sure to check us out at hugfinch.com for all your branding needs. That website again is hugfinch.com.